You remember that during Israel's darkest hour as a nation, two great prophets came from the Lord to stand against the efforts of Ahab, Jezebel, and their descendants. These two prophets are Elijah the Tishbite and Elisha the son of Shaphat. In Israel, you remember, there was a fierce conflict between the prophets of God and King Ahab. Baal worship was finally destroyed, but the worship of God was not restored as it should have been. You remember also that golden calves were brought back into supremacy. And because of that, this period of conflict was not followed by any permanent blessing to the kingdom. Now, as a part of the effort that God made to bring Israel back to him, you remember that there was an outpouring of miracles that God did through his prophets. And at this point, Elijah abruptly appears on the stage of Bible history and predicts a drought. In the book of James in the New Testament, it tells us that he prayed fervently that it would come to pass this uh, and ultimately show the power and the greatness of God as a result while at the very same time show the inadequacy and show the impotence of Baal. During this period of three and a half years, God was with Elijah and God protected him. God told Elijah now, he says, you go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the land. And that's when Elijah challenged Ahab and Baal as demonstrated by the events that we talked about two weeks ago on Sunday evening for those that were with us, those events that transpired on Mount Carmel. After those prophets of Baal were unsuccessful in their getting their idol god, Baal, to respond to their prayer and their request, and we could picture what a ridiculous sight it must have been in our mind's eye, as they had worked themselves up into a frenzy with a fever pitch, and the Bible says that they became so desperate that they took those sharpened objects and they cut themselves and they bled and they jumped up and down and they called out and cried out to the name of Baal, their pagan idol God. You know, incidentally, as a side note, I'm told that was not uncommon for Baal worship. It was not something that was significant only on this occasion. I understand, or so I'm told that those that practiced Baal worship and also those that practiced many other forms of pagan worship did things just like that. And you could picture how that's different from when Elijah is going to speak to God. He doesn't have to call out to him all day and all night and jump up and down and cut himself and bleed. We can picture the magnificent sight after it was that the prophets of Baal were unsuccessful that Elijah prays to the great God of heaven and instantly, the Bible says, fire came down from heaven and consumed everything in sight. The fire consumed the altar, the wood, the sacrifice, and even the water that was poured out in the ditch around the altar. And the Bible says that the people fell down on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Elijah, you remember, also commanded them to seize those prophets of Baal. And the people took those prophets down to the river Kishon and slew them there. Now, Elijah uses this temporary enthusiasm of the people to strike a blow against Baal worship. Let me just say this, though. I mentioned this briefly a couple weeks ago regarding enthusiasm and regarding its connection with momentum. Now, what was the problem? There was many people there that day. I don't know how many that there were, 
But the Bible says after they viewed the magnificent scene that had happened when Elijah prays to the great God of heaven and fire comes raining down and consumes everything that's on the altar. And when the Bible says that they took those prophets of Baal and took them down to the river Kishon and slew them all. When the Bible says that the people of God, however many there were that day, what did they do? They fell down with their faces to the ground and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Oh, there was a blow against Baal worship that day. And Elijah used the temporary enthusiasm of the people to do just that. But you know, I'll tell you something about enthusiasm. It's hard to be enthusiastic all the time. It's easy to go to a gospel meeting and get charged up and get enthused. Whether it's one of the big meetings that are in the United States somewhere at various times of the year. Labor Day is coming up very soon. Or whether you're talking about in, the, in, the, in common terms today in business, you have motivational speakers. You know, I have sat in the audience of many that have stood and spoke motivationally to get you charged up to go back and go back home and sell more things or go back home and do things greater than you've ever done before. That's enthusiasm. But what happens usually is enthusiasm goes by the wayside and then you fall back to what you've always done. You know, a man once said one time, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. It will never change. On this temporary day of enthusiasm, there was a blow that was struck against Baal worship, but it didn't last. Enthusiasm, though, is connected to momentum. You know, I mentioned about going to the gym as a New Year's resolution. I won't talk about that, but let me just, let me just elaborate on that or take it just a step further. I think we'll all understand this concept. Have you ever got yourself on a workout regimen and you decided that you're going to work out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? And you're going to do it every week. And you do it. And it's hard at first. But your enthusiasm motivates you. And you do it. And you get up on Monday and you go and work out. You get up on Wednesday and you go and work out. You get up on Friday and you go and work out. Pretty soon it becomes a habit. It's easy to get up the next time and go to the gym. But what happens? When you miss Monday, it's a little harder to get up on Wednesday and go. Then when you miss Wednesday, it's real hard to get up and go on Friday. If something is in motion, it genuinely stays in motion. If something is moving and once you get the ball rolling and enthusiastically you move that thing and you're all shouldering the load together and you're working together and you're keeping it in motion by way of momentum, it will never stop. But what happens? And listen, it will never stop with very little effort. See, it takes a whole lot of effort to start over again. How many things have we all done that we had to start all over again because we stopped? You know, this sounds kind of silly, but let this sink in. It's easy, somebody said one time, it's easy to stay on track when you're staying on track. And it's easy to stay off track when you get off track. Sounds rather simple, but let that sink in. It's true. And I'll tell you something else. If there was ever a man that is a perfect example of how one man, now one man can make a difference. We talked about Ronnie Wade's sermon the last time I spoke to you and how he has a sermon on that about uh, one man can make a difference. And it's true. 
But one man cannot do it all. And one man's enthusiasm cannot keep momentum of the people going. It takes more. I'm going to tell you right now, if the prophet of God, the great man of faith, the great man of courage, Elijah, if he couldn't get it done with God's hand and God's power with him all the way, then no man today can get it done either. What's that mean? That's just a fancy way of saying, folks, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us. You know, we can look back on some of the greatest uh, periods of growth here at Plans Road. We've seen growth over the years. This congregation has been a stronghold in this area, has been a pillar in this area for so many years, far uh, more than my years in this area. It goes all the way back 40-some years, I think, long time ago. But I'll tell you something. I would imagine if you would look at the times of growth of Plans Road, I would imagine it would be just like it is now. The greatest times of growth is when people were unified, when people were enthusiastic, and when people were working together, and everybody was working together for the same cause. I bet that's when it happened every time. Remember, enthusiasm is great. Motivators to get us enthused are wonderful. People that encourage us to keep pressing on, that's wonderful. But it's going to take all of us to keep the momentum going to serve God and do His will. Well, afterward, Elijah goes back to the top of Mount Carmel, and the Bible says he bowed him, his face to the ground with his face to his knees, and he prayed for rain. He sends out a servant to look toward the sea, and the Bible says that the servant goes out the first time. When he comes back, he has an unfavorable report. He comes back and said there was nothing. He sent out the second time, only to find that the servant comes back and the servant says, there's nothing, there's no sign, there's no sign of rain at all. Then the third time, then the fourth time, then the fifth time, and finally on the sixth time, still no answer. You know, that's kind of like Naaman going down into the muddy waters of Jordan, dipped himself six times, he still was just a, a, a wet leper. But something happened on the seventh time to that leper when he was cleansed. Something happened also on the seventh time. Is there a significance there? I don't know. I do know this. When the servant is sent out the seventh time, finally that servant comes back and he has a different report. He says this. That servant says, Behold, there's a cloud and it's as small as a man's hand and it's rising from the sea. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? The servant comes back and says, yes, finally there's a sign. There's a, there's a cloud, and it's as, as small as the fist of a man, and it's rising from the sea. And Elijah, right then and there, knew that God had heard his prayer, that his prayer was answered. He told his servant to go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go before the rain stops you. Ahab's destination was the city of Jezreel. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God came upon Elijah and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the city. You know, in summary so far, this has been a great day of victory for the cause of God. Elijah and all of the faithful people can go to bed happy that night in the hope that the kingdom had finally turned back to God as it should have been. But unfortunately, that's not what lay ahead. At this point, we find that Ahab comes on the scene now, 
And he goes to talk to his wife, Jezebel. Oh, she was a piece of work now. A good old Jezebel. You know, I'll tell you something. If you think for one minute that a man's wife does not have an impact or an influence over her husband, I want you to take a look at this now. Ahab is the king. Ahab goes and he sees some magnificent things. He sees all these prophets slain. And all of a sudden, he goes back and he's told by the servant of Elijah, hurry up and hitch up your chariot and get back to Jezreel because the rain's coming and it's going to be a quagmire. It's going to be a flood and you better move. But he gets back and he talks to Jezebel and he says, oh, Jezebel, there was a contest between God and Baal. Your false prophets were killed. And uh, there's none left. And he told her about all of the things that had happened. You know, I don't know why Jezebel didn't say, well, we lucked out here. At least we're living. Let's change our minds. Let's change our tune. Obviously, the great God of heaven, Jehovah God, is mightier and greater than all of the false gods that I have served in days gone by. Wouldn't it have been just easier for her to do that? That's not what happens at all. In fact, Jezebel, the Bible says, is furious. And she gets word by way of a servant to bring these words to Elijah. And this is what she says. May the gods punish me severely if I do not kill you by this time tomorrow. May the gods kill me if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow. You know, this mighty man of God now realizes he's mortal and he's afraid. You know, there's nothing wrong with being afraid. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. In fact, as you've heard me say so many times, there is no such thing as courage where there is no fear. The Bible knows there's fear. Why was he afraid, though? God had been with him all along. Why was he so terrified? Why did he want to run and hide? Why was that? I don't know. All I do know is the human side kicked in and something happened that happens to every single one of us from time to time, even though we believe in God, we trust in God, we have hope in God, and we're trying to serve God. Something happened to Elijah that can happen to every single one of us, and I would imagine it has in your life. And that is discouragement began to set in. Discouragement set in. He's terrified. He would certainly not be the first prophet of God that Jezebel had killed. And so the Bible says that he runs for his life. And he comes to the city of Beersheba in the southern part of Judah. You remember Dan was at the northernest part and Beersheba was at the southernest Part. In fact, when the Bible talks about from Dan to Beersheba, it's talking about the entire land of Judah. It's talking about from one end to the next. You know, I've heard people use that. I know a preacher all the time that uses that phrase. Like, for example, if something is, has covered a particular uh, subject from, from, one, from one end to the other, he says, man, I've covered it from Dan to Beersheba. Or one time, Daryl one time said that he was trying to describe how bad he pulled his hamstring. And he said, man, I pulled that thing from Saskatchewan to Idaho. Showing the length of the tear. From Dan to Beersheba. So they go down to the southernest part or southernest region of Judah. 
in, Beer, in Beersheba. And Elijah, the Bible says, left his servant there, and he goes another one-day journey, and he goes into the desert. Now get this. He stops to rest under a juniper tree, and he's so discouraged that he wanted to die. You know, I've been discouraged. I've never wanted to die. Have you ever been that discouraged? He's so discouraged that his life has no value anymore. He's so down. This man of God wants to die. And he finds himself there under that juniper tree. He prays, oh Lord, I've had enough. He says, please take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors, he prayed. And the Bible says that he laid down there under that tree and he goes to sleep. But God was watching out for this prophet of his and Elijah, the Bible says that on the scene comes an angel, and the angel wakes him. And he says, get up and eat. And Elijah looked, and when he did, by his head was a cake of bread baked on some hot coals and a jar of water. And the Bible says that he ate and he drank, but he laid back down again, and he went to sleep a second time. And after that, the angel comes back to him, and he says, get up. He says, get up and eat again because you're going on a long journey. So Elijah ate again and he continued his journey south. He was sustained, the scripture says, on the strength of the food that the angel had given to him while he made a trip to Mount Horeb, a 40 days journey. Now the name Horeb, as you know, is another name for Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And that was going to be his journey and it was going to take him 40 days to get there. When he got there to Horeb, he goes into a cave and he spends the night. And God spoke to Elijah once more and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now notice the words of Elijah. He says, I've been zealous for your cause. In fact, the King James Version says, I've been jealous for you. You know, that's another way of saying I have fought for you. And when all of these other prophets of these false gods have turned the eyes and turned the head of your people, I have stood against them. I have been jealous for you, and I have been zealous in taking your word to your people. But he says it's not helped at all. The Israelites have broken down your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. But God said, go out and stand on the mountain because the Lord is going to pass by you. And Elijah goes out to observe and he saw some very startling things, very impressive things. First of all, he sees a strong, powerful wind and that wind passes by him. And it was so great that even the rocks were shattered. But the Bible says the Lord was not in the wind. Next, there was an earthquake and then a fire, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, nor was he in the fire. But notice, after these demonstrations of God's power, there was a gentle whisper, there was a still, small voice. Wouldn't it have been something to be able to hear the still, small voice? I think
think it's amazing what the voice says. He says again, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah had not understood God's point. He answered again like he did before. He says, God, there's no use. It's no use. I have tried. I've done everything that I could. I have been jealous for you. I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. It has not helped. And then he rehearses all the negative stuff. Sometimes we do that. We rehearse all the negative things that are going on, and we fail to see the good things that are going on and the good things that are in motion. Sometimes we do just like Elijah did, and let's notice what he said. The Israelites rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They killed your prophets. And I'm the only one left and they're out to get me too. But I'm going to tell you something. You know, what, you know what God says to him? God is going to give him the antidote for his depression and for his discouragement. This is beautiful now. Remember all those Earthquakes and fires and winds, the Lord was not in that. That was an impressive sign that day. We're going to get to that in a minute about what I think all that was about. But in the still, small voice, God's going to give Elijah the antidote for how he's feeling. You know what he says? He said, Elijah, get up and go back. He said, get up and go back. He said, there's work to be done. He said, it's not time for you to die. Go back and anoint Hazael, king of the Syrians. Anoint Jehu, the king of Israel. And you're also going to anoint your successor. And his name is Elisha. And I want you to go back and anoint him too. I'm going to tell you something, folks. What a pattern right there. When you're discouraged, get up and go to work. You know, I'll tell you, I know folks get depressed. I've been depressed too. I think everybody's been depressed at one point in time. Some folks are depressed more than others. I understand that completely. I know that. I know sometimes when you try to encourage folks and they are very depressed, it's easier said than done. I know that too. I know sometimes folks need medication. That's all wonderful. It's all part of God's means. That's great. But I'll tell you this about me. Every single time that I've been depressed or downed about something, what do I want to do? I want to lay in that recliner, and I want to do nothing. I want to go to sleep. I want to take long naps. That's what my body wants me to do. But if I can just somehow, some way, muster up the courage and the strength to grab myself by my bootstraps and get myself out the door to go do something productive, I guarantee you every time when I will do that, I feel better. I do feel better. One time I was feeling, well, anyway, had a little issue. And I didn't feel like doing a thing. Something as little as getting up and went for a run with the dog. And I felt better. You know why? I got up and did something productive. That's what he tells Elijah to do. He said, Elijah, I know you're down. I understand everything you're saying. But the first thing he says to him is, what are you doing here? Get up and go back. You have work to do. It's not time for you to die. I have these things for you to do. I know it's hard. 
I know it's hard when things hit us one thing after another, after another, after another. And sometimes it's hard to pick ourselves back up. Let me illustrate it like this. Some of you, many of you, most of you, maybe all of you have heard of the Buffalo Bills of professional football. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, they were the only NFL football team that had ever lost four straight Super Bowls. Never happened before. In fact, they were the only sports team of any kind that had ever lost four world championships in a row. It's hard to get back to the pinnacle. It's hard to get back to the top and compete at that level. They did it four times in a row and lost every one of them. And the third one, they lost by nearly 50 points. Marv Levy, who's now in the Hall of Fame, the coach of the Buffalo Bills, was asked later on as they talked about his story. They said, what did you do? How did you get them up again? How did you get your own mind ready to go, to go back into battle again the next year when you're disappointed like that and you're discouraged? You know what he said? He said, one night I was laying there and I was feeling so discouraged and I was feeling so down but I realized my responsibility to my team. So in the back of my mind, all of a sudden, in my mind came the, uh, came the words of part of a poem about a Scottish warrior. Maybe you've heard this before. He said, I was reminded of these words. Fight on, my men, Sir Andrew said. I'm little hurt, but not yet slain. I'll just lie down and bleed a while. And then I'll rise. And fight again. Man said one time, if you ever get down, then look up, get up, and most importantly, don't ever give up. If you're down, look up. If you're down, go to work. If you're depressed, do something productive. Elijah wants to die. What's God say? Did he say, oh, just lay there. No. He says, get up and go back. Get up and go back. He said, when you anoint these men that I've just told you about, these men are going to bring judgment upon the wicked ones that you are concerned about. And God said this too. Notice, he says, but Elijah, by the way, when you said there was no hope and when you said that everyone is bowing the knee before Baal, Got news for you, Elijah. It's not true. There's still 7,000 that have not bowed the knee before Baal. Sometimes we think there's nobody left. Yeah, there is. Look around. There is still God's people holding the line. There is still God's people seeking to serve him. There is still God's people that don't want to go out and digress in other ways that are found religiously today. There's still those that are left. He tells them, you focus on those. Oh, judgment's coming to the ones you're concerned about, but you go back for the 7,000. And don't you ever give up. Elijah got up and he goes back to Israel. Let's take a moment, though, to look at this story before we move further in history. Elijah had won a mighty victory on Mount Carmel against the false prophets of Baal. What did we see? We saw the courage that faith produces on that day. 
but efforts did not bring about lasting reforms, the lasting reforms that he had hoped for. And so, immediately, Jezebel threatened to kill him. He knew that she had the power to do so. He was afraid, so he fled. And the more he thought about the matter, the more discouraged he became. He felt there was no use trying any harder because in his mind, nothing was going to help. Now, we've already noted that three and a half years of drought was in response to his prayer. We already knew that. We already knew that on Mount Carmel, Elijah stood there and hoped the people had learned the lesson that Baal was powerless. We know that too. He could neither send fire to burn the sacrifice, nor could produce rain to help the land. Yet, it was obvious that Jezebel had a stranglehold on the land, and the people were not going to reject Baal worship. So why keep trying? That was Elijah's perspective. Why try? What's the use? Sometimes folks say that when we talk about preaching to the lost. What's the use? They're not interested. You know, whether they're interested or whether they're not interested has nothing to do with us. Whether they're interested and whether they're not interested has nothing to do with Jesus' command of taking the gospel to everyone in the world. Nowhere is it said that there's a condition, take the gospel to the lost unless they don't want it. It doesn't say that. So Elijah said there's no use. That's his perspective. But notice God's response and God's perspective now. God whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God whose ways are higher than our ways. Let's notice what God does. Did you notice that 40 days passed by before God spoke to Elijah at Mount Horeb? He became discouraged, but God does not speak to him for 40 days. You ever wonder why? Why 40 days? Why was the time given to Elijah? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I really think that God was allowing time itself to be a healer for Elijah's discouragement. I really do. You ever heard the saying, time heals all wounds? Someone that you dearly love passes from this life, and the pain is so great and so acute when you go to their funeral, and it's terrible, but little by little, oh, you're always sad, but little by little, it doesn't hurt quite as bad. And then time goes by, and you look back on that individual, and you do so with laughter and happiness and great stories that you remember and joy, because time heals wounds. Certainly, there's a reason to grieve over the nation of Israel, and God allowed time for Elijah to do that. But grieving alone will not solve Israel's problems. It, it was not as hopeless as Elijah had thought it was, and notice God's actions. He spoke to Elijah, asking him why he was there instead of back in Israel. But did you notice, never one time did God rebuke Elijah for being discouraged. Not once. Listen, that's the same loving God that rebukes men in the Bible continually. That's the same God that through his word rebukes us too. Same God. When we fail him, when we turn our back on him, there's great rebuke coming. When people make poor choices, there is ramifications coming and there is rebuke and correction coming. 
But what about when you're discouraged? Not one time was Elijah rebuked. Not once. But let me just tell you what the greatest encouragement you can ever give somebody is. Not stay down. Stay down. It's all right. Feel like you do. That doesn't help at all. No, you need somebody to encourage you to look up. Get up. And don't give up. Because you don't have a choice. You've got to do it for the rest of your life. And when you fall down, and you will, you've got to look up and get up and never give up. Those are things that help us when we are down. God demonstrated his power over nature instead of rebuking Elijah. He was reminding Elijah that God is still in control and that he could care for his prophet. In this great sign that he shows him when he said the Lord is going to pass by, all he saw were these great signs, wind, fire, and earthquake, but God was not in them. Showing the prophet that God is still in control. God quietly spoke to Elijah again, asking him why he was there. But Elijah was still too discouraged to understand. But God still does not rebuke him. Instead, God told him to go back and perform the duties that God had for him. Get that. You're down? Go do some duties. You're, you're feeling sad? Go do some duties that are required of you, that I have told you to do. Go to work. Roll up your sleeves and you'll feel better. And incidentally, we're keeping the will of God when we are performing our duties spiritually. After all that, God tells him it's not hopeless. You know, it's interesting that God waits until the last of all to tell Elijah he's not alone. Even if Elijah had been standing totally alone in Israel, God still could have protected him. He could have done that, and he could have helped him perform all of his assigned tasks. But another thought, though, is, and I think this is what God is doing, Another thought is that God was teaching Elijah that God works in different ways too. There's a time for fire. There's a time for judgment. There's a time for earthquakes. There's a time for all of that. There was a time for those wicked men on Mount Carmel to see the magnificence and greatness and power and might of God. There's a time for that. But guess what? When God was going to tell his will to Elijah, he does it with a whispering, still, small voice. If we want to know what God's will is, it is always through his word. God tells us his will through his word. What does God expect for us? What is God's will for me? God's will for me is the same will that he has for you, and that is to serve him all the days of your life with whatever you've got, whatever talents, whatever abilities that you have. God surely speaks quietly to us through his word when, when he seeks to teach men his will. Many today are looking for signs like they did in old times. They're looking for fire and earthquakes today. They're looking for something greater. There's got to be something else. It's not enough. So says the religious world today. I tell you what, it was enough for Elijah, though. The still small voice, the whispering voice of God telling him what his will was. God's will is given to us through his word. You know, this story, as we draw our remarks to a close this morning, I, I really think ought to be an encourage, encouragement to us in our service to God. 
Because there are times when we grow discouraged in our efforts to serve God faithfully. Perhaps we too have fought some mighty battle against forces of evil only to find that we've had little success or maybe none at all or that we can see. We may grieve just as Elijah did, but God's message is the same for us today. And that is certainly grieve over the sin of the world, but don't let that grief cripple you to the point that you cannot move forward to the tasks before you. And remember, God has told us to do our part in taking the truth to the world, but he has never said, convert all of those that reject me. That's not what he says, not one time. We are seed throwers and water boys. Take the seed, cast it out. The cultivated soil needs to happen, though, regarding their heart. And if their soil is right, if their heart is right, the seed is perfect. That's all we need. The seed is perfect. The heart has to change. The message is true. The message has the same power it's always had. Well, finally now, when Elijah got back to Israel, he goes into a field where Elisha, the son of Shaphat, was plowing. And Elijah walks up to him, and the Bible says, I don't, I've tried to picture this, but he takes off his cloak. He takes his outer garment, his cloak. Some say his mantle, some translations. But he, take, he took his cloak, and he walks up to Elijah, and Elijah, uh, Elisha, and Elisha's in the, in the middle of plowing in the field. He's working. You know, it's kind of a picture there. God always chooses workers. God always wants workers. What's he doing? Like those apostles, mending their nets, casting their nets, doing all those things. Uh, all of those things that are productive. Workers. Those are the ones that were called. Here's Elisha. He's out there plowing in his field. And Elijah walks up to him. And he takes off his cloak. And he put his cloak on his back. And he said nothing to him. And he turns and walks away. But Elisha knew right then and there. I'm to follow him. He said, let me go back. Elijah said, no, don't go back. He said, let me go back. Let me say goodbye. Don't go back. But he goes back, and the Bible says he prepares those oxen, and he cooks them, and he feeds those that were there, seemingly to say farewell to them. And finally, he rises up, and he follows Elijah, recognizing he is to become his attendant from that point forward. So now on the scene we find of Bible history on the stage now, is another character, and that is the prophet Elisha. There are some other things and other stories that come up in the life of Ahab and so forth, as we, and Jezebel as we continue forward. We'll notice a few of those as we move along, as we're continuing with our theme of kings of the divided kingdom and the prophets of that time. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.